Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardi Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. We are so excited for today's discussion. Absolutely honored to be joined by colleagues from Summa Health Cardiology Training Program. We have with us cardiology fellows and doctors, Jack Hornick, Poo Nander, and Sideris Fakaras. Guys, welcome to the show. So excited to learn from you today. Would you mind telling the audience who you are? Thank you so much for having us. My name is Jack Hornick. I'm one of the third-year cardiology fellows here at SUMA in Akron, Ohio. I trained up in, at university hospitals in Cleveland. I actually went to med school back with Dan at University of Maryland. We actually had a phenomenal experience of him and I being on a a rotation together very early on for his first month in third year and my first sub-I as a fourth year. It was absolutely phenomenal. It was great to get to know him. Amazing to see the things you guys are doing now. Thank you for having us. I'm Poo, originally from Myanmar, where I did my med school. I did my residency training in Central Michigan University, and I'm currently at SUMA, second year cardiology fellow, and I'll be applying for advanced heart failure a year from now. I'm so excited for our discussion today. Hi, guys. This is Sid. I am a second-year cardiology fellow at SUMA Health. Like my co-fellows have said, we're very excited to be part of this program, so thank you for having us on. You guys are doing some great things. I am also interested in advanced heart failure after fellowship here and excited to get this started. Sid, Pooh, Jack, it is so nice to have you on the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cardio Nerds family. And as Jack mentioned, when I was a wee Cardio Nerd way back in my MS3 days, I strolled in from the preclinical world right into the clinical world July 1st, and I was nervous. And Jack, who was a, a super sub-I at the time, modeled for me what it's like to be an amazing student slash clinician and took me under his wing, helped me out all the time, fed me notes across the table, under the table, you know, of like to always say it's lupus and TB and syphilis and all that stuff giving me the right differential diagnosis that I needed for every patient. So, Jack, this is an honor to pay some homage back to our day to basically uh, thank you. But thank you all for being here today. Yo, guys, this is amazing. These pictures of Akron, Ohio is just fantastic. I am coming right now. (sighs) Magic carpet, zoom me there. We are at this most beautiful, beautiful city. Take us to your favorite place in Akron. 
so we can start talking about some serious cardiology. We're really excited to have you here in Akron with us. And Dan, thank you very much for those kind words. You made it look very easy. The transition you made from third year to fourth year, flawless. So in Akron, we should go to the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. We'll have a phenomenal time. There's multiple hiking trails. There's waterfalls, especially now as we're approaching fall with the leaves changing colors. It's absolutely beautiful. Specifically in Cuyahoga Valley National Park, a place that we could go is the Towpath Trail. The Towpath Trail, it's the trail that essentially connects Cleveland to Akron, and it runs along a canal, and it's the most scenic place you'll ever be. Absolutely wonderful views. I think you guys will like it a lot. I love that, Jack. You know, living in Cleveland myself, there's nothing more beautiful than the Cleveland summers. And with the Emerald Necklace and the Cuyahoga National Park, it's just such a gorgeous place to take the family out for a hike and uh, so many other outdoor activities. And the Towpath Trail especially is a place that I've really been wanting to go to. I've heard so many great things. It's definitely on my bucket list. So thank you for taking us there today. As we enjoy the great outdoors here in the Cuyahoga National Park, Let's do what we cardiologists love doing on our time off. Let's talk some cardiology. Sid, I hear you've got a great case for us. Yes, I do. And ready to dive right into it. I will give a caveat. Instead of a usual case presentation of a admission and discharge, we have what we like to create a story over many years. And this specific case takes about over a period of six years, actually. And we thought it was interesting enough and a very curious diagnosis, and we thought it would be worthy to present here on Cardio Nerds. So this isn't just a case. It is a saga. Let's dive in. Exactly. In a galaxy far, far away. We can't be, we can't wait. <laughs> this was a 44-year-old Caucasian female who presented to our emergency department in 2014. Her chief complaint was about one hour prior, acute onset of dizziness, palpitations, and overall fatigue. She had no prior medical history before this. She was otherwise healthy. No symptoms like this ever in her lifetime before in her 44 young years. No other medical history, no other medications, no surgeries. These were all brand new symptoms. Wow. You know, I've got to say, Sid, back when Dan was a wee little fledgling larva of a cardio nerd, he would have loved admitting this patient, right? I mean, you've got a focus complaint and no medical history to write about on your HMP. So you can just focus on the problem at hand. But the downside, of course, is that we don't have a way of using medical history to contextualize the current presentation, right? And palpitations are such a common problem. And it's always hard to know, is this a palpitation essentially indicating something ominous? Or is this palpitations where, you know, you just have palpitations after you have too much coffee? The medical history is not going to help us out here. But historically, there are a couple of features, I would say, in two buckets that are useful to get at. One bucket is, is there a history indicative of a syndrome that predisposes to risky arrhythmias? And the second bucket are, are there symptoms to suggest that the palpitations are associated with a hemodynamically significant arrhythmia? So with regards to uh, syndrome where you have malignant arrhythmias, you can think about, is it ischemic? So are there anginal complaints? Is it reflective of an underlying cardiomyopathy? So is there heart failure symptoms? Is there a familial predisposition to this? So is there a family history of sudden cardiac death? And it has a patient has syncope in the past. Like, does the patient actually have sort of a history that this is a recurrent problem? And on the second bucket, to get at whether or not there is an actual malignant arrhythmia of hemodynamic consequence, you can ask, are there signs of hypoperfusion? Is a patient lightheaded, dizzy? Are they passing out? Are they having diaphoresis, chest pain from ischemia from the arrhythmia itself? So all of these things are important to get at. 
So far, we don't know too much about this patient, but we know that the palpitation that this patient has in particular are associated with dizziness. So already we've got alarm bells ringing all over the place. So I'm glad the patient is here. What happened next? I think you bring up great points. You actually hit everything right on the head of palpitations. I think as cardiologists, we do get the complaint of palpitations many times over. And I think your differentials of what you were looking for are exactly to look for in this type of patient. I will say specifically for her, she had no family history of sudden cardiac death or early onset heart failures or whatever else cardiovascular wise there was. There was nothing that in her history. Herself, she had no prior syncopal or pre-syncopal spells. She also had no ever chest pains, no shortness of breath. This was all immediate onset one hour prior with no other medical history before. It was really interesting how this presentation became. You've got our attention, my friend. Yes. So in the emergency room, because of her dizziness, like you mentioned, that could be a serious sign of an actual serious arrhythmia. She was whisked away back to the triage area and put on a monitor, and her heart rate was 170 beats per minute. Whew. Exactly. Furthering the case of the serious of this. In addition, she gets an immediate EKG down in the emergency room, and it is a wide, complex, regular tachycardia. When we see wide complex tachycardia, it can be either ventricular arrhythmia or can be SVT with aberrancy. So it's really important to look for if we see any AV dissociation, any capture beats, fusion beats. But either way, for any unstable wide complex tachycardia, the management is a synchronized cardioversion. I think that that was a, a great differential in showing us the difference between SVT and VT. One point that I want to make is the patient is dizzy, and the fact that the patient does have a blood pressure with a heart rate of 170 doesn't really help us one way or the other in helping to differentiate if this is SVT or if this is a more concerning ventricular tachycardia. No matter what the blood pressure turns out to be, the patient could still have either SVT or VT. Yeah, these are all great points, and I have to say that all the times I've come across a regular wide complex tachyarrhythmia, it can be confusing. Is this an SVT with aberrancy? Is this VT? You know, certainly the audience can take a look at Brugada's criteria and we can include that in the show notes, but it is definitely an important differentiation to make. But either way, as you say, regardless, if the patient is unstable, the management is going to be the same in that hyperacute setting. And then we'll have to sit back and try to figure out what's going on. Speaking of which, Sid, what's going on? Okay. So she's hooked up to the monitor in the emergency room. She is at 170 beats per minute with a regular wide complex tachycardia in the emergency room at that time it was identified to be sustained monomorphic ventricular tachycardia. With this, she undergoes an immediate cardioversion with a synchronized cardioversion, one shock of 200 joules, back to sinus rhythm. Her post-EKG for a 44-year-old female with no medical history was not quote-unquote normal. It was sinus rhythm, bradycardic, diffusely low voltage, an incomplete right bundle branch block, and still ventricular ectopy that's being captured on the 12 lead. There was no prior to compare to. All right. Wow. So this case is really riveting. And the craziest part about it is like, we're kind of like going back through time. So this is just really great. And to see an ECG like this is really almost like a time capsule. We don't have the strip for the VT here, but a post-cardioversion ECG, it could be an absolute goldmine when trying to figure out like what's going on with your patient and why they had the palpitations 
to begin with. So, you know, looking for resting delta waves to indicate WPW, hints or evidence of cardiomyopathies like LVH and T-wave abnormalities with uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and other cardiomyopathies that may have clues on the ECGs that um, I won't go over right now. And then, of course, ischemic changes, evidence of heart block or conduction abnormalities, and then also ectopy. So, for example, we have these PVCs over here. You can use the axis of the PVCs to identify where in the heart they're coming from. So here we only get a glimpse of one or two PVCs, but they're basically coming from the bottom of the heart going upwards, a superior axis. So you can sort of get an idea, wow, if I'm thinking that this patient has monomorphic VT, which often can come from some scar and a reentry circuit, you can utilize the PVCs to get an idea of where it's coming from. And in certain cases, it may give you a tip as to an underlying cardiomyopathy or an underlying substrate that would give you the monomorphic VT that we saw when the patient was unstable. That's a really great point, Dan. You know, the post-cardioversion EKG provides such a wealth of information, and so does the rhythm of the VT itself. And so we know that this was a wide complex, regular, monomorphic, likely ventricular tachycardia. The other things to really think about when you're conveying information to a consultant or to one another, I think about the following things. What was the cycle length, the RR distance, really essentially what the heart rate is? Is it coming from the right side or the left side? You know, so on V1, if it's a left bundle branch block morphology, then it's coming from the right side and vice versa. Two is, is it like Dan was saying for the PVC, but similarly for the VT, is a superior axis or the inferior axis, depending on if it's positive or negative in the inferior leads, looking at where the precordial transition is. And all of these things will help you identify uh, potentially where the VT focus is originating from, which is helpful, can be helpful rather in the diagnosis, but then also definitely so in the approach, especially if we end up taking the patient to the EP lab. So, you know, when we're talking to the electrophysiologist, they're definitely going to have their ears perked up for what was the morphology, what was the speed, and what can I do for this patient moving forward? Great point. So looking at the patient PVC, so we don't see septa Q wave in lead one. So it's kind of like a left bundle pattern. So probably com- coming from the right ventricle. And also there's a negative deflection in two and three. So it's from almost like a apex of the RV. So if it is a VT morphology. Another thing in that EKG that uh, we could appreciate is there's a small positive deflection at the end of QRS in between the end of QRS and beginning of the T wave. And also we can also see T wave inversion in V1 and V2. So possible differential for that uh, small positive deflection at the end of QRS it can be the most important key point is going to be it can be epsilon wave post-excitation of some right ventricular cardiomyocytes, delay excitation, which is also one of the major diagnostic criteria. And one of the other things I wanted to point out, kind of going off of what Pooh said with common things being common, in a patient that's over the age of 40 that presents with a wide QRS complex BT, you have to think of coronary ischemia as the potential cause. It's looking like this isn't the case for us here now. It looks like this is something else. So that is something that we should make sure we rule out while this patient is here. Yeah, these are absolutely great points. And, you know, we're already getting so much information from the post-cardioversion ECG. We know that this is not a, probably not a healthy heart. There are conduction abnormalities and repolarization abnormalities, as well as PVCs on the resting EKG. So we're certainly looking for a structural heart disease. But at this point, you can still have a lot of these changes from metabolic issues, uh, like electrolyte abnormalities. So, you know, we certainly need more information before we go further. That's absolutely right. So sit what snakes. So she was admitted to the hospital after this, and her initial workup included general chemistry labs. This showed a normal complete blood count, normal basic metabolic panel, liver profile, and INR. 
No discrepancies were seen on any of her blood work. She did undergo a left heart catheterization. This revealed normal coronary anatomy and no obstructive coronary disease. Pertinently, though, she did have a transthoracic echocardiogram. Her pertinent results showed a preserved left ventricular ejection fraction, no significant valvular disease, but did show a dilated right ventricle with a base measuring 5.0 centimeters and a mid-segment showing 4.0 centimeters. She also had a decreased systolic function of the right ventricle of 0.06 meter per second RVS prime. Wow, Sid, this was such a helpful read. And the window into the heart really gives us so much information here. You know, a patient that comes in with symptomatic palpitations found to have symptomatic VT, the blood work came up negative to find a metabolic cause. The coronary angiography did not indicate an ischemic cause. And I will say in women, more than men, there is a risk of having microvascular disease. So we haven't completely ruled that out just yet. Social history doesn't indicate a toxic insult like alcoholism or adrenergic stimulants like cocaine or methamphetamines. What we're looking for on the echo at this point is a structural abnormality that was predisposed to ventricular tachycardia and SCAR. You know, we've talked in the past about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, definitely ischemic cardiomyopathy, heart failure in general. And here, we have a abnormal right ventricle, and Pooh did a great job talking about the EKG, essentially indications of abnormal root polarization from the right side. And just at this point, we think, okay, we have a dilated and weak right ventricle. The causes in general are three big buckets. Is it a pressure overload problem? Right, The most common cause of right ventricular dysfunction is left ventricular dysfunction from pulmonary hypertension or some other cause of pulmonary hypertension or afterload like pulmonary valve stenosis. So that's one, pressure overload. Number two is volume overload. So like regurgitant lesions, or shunts, for instance. And number three, is it a myocardial problem? So you can imagine some sort of cardiomyopathy or an ischemic insult or the like. And so, you know, right now we're thinking, could this be the cause of her arrhythmia? And why is it that the RV is abnormal? Amit, that was such an amazing point and a great way to approach an echo demonstrating RV dysfunction. Those three buckets are just incredibly helpful to get started. They mentioned that there was no evidence of pulmonary hypertension, which already makes you start thinking that is this a primary RV problem? We just want to remember that initially, if somebody's going to have RV dysfunction from pulmonary hypertension, the RV starts to beef up, it starts to work out, it starts to try to eject out into the pulmonary circulation. But over time, that RV eventually poops out, and so it can no longer pump into the circulation. And so the blood pressure that it could generate in that pulmonary vasculature is actually low. And so you may end up having low or normal pulmonary blood pressure and not have pulmonary hypertension anymore. But really, the original insult was actually pulmonary hypertension. You have to weigh out these two things. In this case, you know, we didn't see severe RV dysfunction yet on the echo. So we're already getting suspicious that we can localize this lesion to the RV predominantly and less likely put the culprit onto the pulmonary vasculature as an etiology for this. But I'm really excited to hear what happens next. So these are the great points. So if we think back EKG that we had, if we put all the information together with EKG and this echo finding, EKG with like a right bundle pattern, T-wave inversion in uh, right precordial leads with dilated RV and decreased systolic function. So at this point, I think for us, the highest differential is going to be RV cardiomyopathy. And we need some more information to sort it out. So I think you're right. At this point, the differential does seem to be pointing to a RV primary process. And it does kind of smell of an arrhythmogenic RV cardiomyopathy or RV dysplasia. 
There are other tests that we can do in this case, and a cardiac MRI, which I'll get into in just one minute, could be done. But this patient had a ICD placed at this time that unfortunately was before the time of MRI-compatible ICDs. Yeah, we run into that situation all the time. Definitely makes a challenging situation a little bit more challenging. But what did you guys do to sort this out afterwards? So, Dan and Amit, you guys made great points about the differential diagnosis, I think, at this point of what we have for this patient. And like my co-fellows mentioned, I think the triage at the top of the list for this patient specifically would be a primary RV myocardial issue. So getting back to the case, because of this, as our astute colleagues back in 2014 were also thinking, she undergoes genetic testing that is ordered in the hospital. The genetic testing comes back for two variants of uncertain significance in the DSP in the JUP genets. DSP gene is providing instructions for making the protein desmoplakin, while the JUP gene provides instructions for making the protein placoglobin. Therein lies the difficulties of genetic testing. These famed VUSs, or variants of uncertain significance. Couldn't agree more. The issues with genetic testing that we come across with all the time are... You know, one, you may have a genetic mutation and it's hard to know, is this pathogenetic or not? And then conversely, you may have a patient with a classic phenotype of a disease process and they may be negative for the genetic mutation. And so, you know, does that really decrease your pretest probability that the patient has an underlying disorder? And so, you know, these certainly are genes that are important in arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathies. And I'd be excited to get more into that. But how did you guys differentiate whether these VUSs or variants of uncertain significance were of certain significance in this situation. Sure, Amit. Thank you very much for asking that. So from looking at the genetics that are associated with ARVC or ARVD, a lot of the genes that are associated with this are genes that are desmosomal genes that encode for proteins that are part of the desmosome structure. And actually, if you think about which genes that are associated with ARVC, there are 16 that have really been described to date. And two of the genes that Sid mentioned, the DSP, which is the desmoplankin, and the JUP, which codes for the placoglobulin, these two are two of the five most common genes that are associated with ARVC. These genes are inherited through an autosomal dominant manner, but it makes it very challenging in patients like this because there's an incomplete penetrance for these genes. So we sometimes see it in some family members, and then it takes a little bit of time for it to come back up. It's a great point. Thanks for explaining. Since we're talking about the ARVC, so there are certain criteria to make a diagnosis. So we don't necessarily need to have genetic testing to be able to diagnose ARVC. Based on six main characteristic feature, it has like a major criteria and minor criteria. If you have a major criteria, you get two points. If you have minor criteria, you get one point. So you add up all the points that you have from six main characteristics. And if you have four points, it's a definite ARVC. If you have three points, it's borderline. And if you have two points, it's possible ARVC. These main characteristics are one, structural abnormality, whether we can see on echo or MRI. Two, histopathological finding, tissue finding by biopsy. Three, repolarization abnormality that we can see on EKG, which is T-wave inversion in right precordial lead. Four, depolarization abnormalities, which is delayed excitation, small positive deflection anywhere between at the end of QRS and T-wave. And five, arrhythmia, sustained ventricular arrhythmia, especially left bundle morphology. Six, family history and genetic tests. 
So the big categories really are structural abnormalities on imaging, characteristic histopathologic findings on biopsy, electrical abnormalities that are characteristic, actual arrhythmias, and family history. So based on that criteria, a patient has, which is pointed out structural abnormality, RB dilatation meets the criteria. So she already got two points from that. And she did have a repolarization abnormality, T-wave inversion in right precordially, which she already had two points. And she also did have an epsilon wave, which is a small positive deflection at the end of QRS. So, which is also a major criteria. So it counts two points. So altogether already six points without even genetic testing. She's already definite ARBC. Yeah, that's incredible and very helpful. And, you know, I think an important point to make is the diagnostic criteria for ARBC is essentially a clinical diagnostic criteria. Genetic testing for the patient herself actually doesn't make it into the genetic criteria because of all of the caveats that we mentioned earlier in terms of incomplete penetrance, mutations that may not be pathogenetic, and false negatives because we don't just don't know all the genes that may be involved. In fact, only 50% or so of patients with diagnosed ARBC are found to have genetic mutation on testing. And so it's a clinical criteria that can be challenging to apply, but this patient certainly has a lot of high-risk features. That's absolutely right. ARBC is a very challenging diagnosis to make for all the reasons you said. There's no one smoking gun that can really point us in the direction of making an official diagnosis. We really do have to rely on criteria, as Pooh mentioned. Yeah, and I'll add that the presentation is just as equally confusing sometimes. You know, some patients may present with electrical abnormalities, like this particular patient, and some patients may present with heart failure abnormalities, and some patients may present with vague symptoms, and some patients may present because they had a genetic referral because having a family member with it. So ARVC is one of those diagnoses that come through a hospital through different ways. Maybe the electrophysiologist or the general cardiologist, the internist can come to the cardiologist or come to our attention in many different ways. And obviously, every case of ARVC really requires a multidisciplinary care team, as I'm sure we'll hear about. But just another thing to reflect on as we're getting into the medicine of it, ARVC is a really, really, really challenging diagnosis to hear as a patient but also to deliver as a practitioner. And, you know, it's one of these diagnoses like that patient may have come in, I have a little palpitations here and there, or even more more severe like this one that really wasn't feeling well. And maybe they're thinking when they come into the hospital that I'll just get checked out in the ED and I'll be fine. And then they can get this diagnosis, which has really devastating consequences for the patient themselves, but also for the family members. And so this could be a really challenging diagnosis to deliver. And I have to say that I've seen some great, great, great role models do that really well, but it can never be easy. That's a really great point, Dan. And you know what I'm learning so far in this conversation is that ARVC is a challenging diagnosis to make, but a very important one to make. And is uh, genetics are confusing, and so a multidisciplinary team that includes uh, geneticists can be a clinical geneticist can be helpful. And number two. We cardio nerds just love acronyms. I mean, this patient has a VUS and the DSP and the JUP and therefore may have ARVC and therefore may need an ICD because she presented with a VT and so on. Great lingo. Love it. So now that we've essentially arrived at a clinical diagnosis of ARVC, what are the next steps in managing this patient? I mean, you know, she essentially came in with a sustained VT. Where do we go from here in taking it back to the patient? So absolutely. We can't forget that she still, even though we have the fanfare of this diagnosis of ARVC, she still presents to us in a sustained VT episode that required therapies. So to finish her hospitalization six years ago, she does receive an implantable cardioverter defilibrator. In addition, 
She is established with the electrophysiology team here at SUMA. And the, after a shared decision-making therapy of a an ablation versus antirhythmic, they choose to go with Sotolol, 80 milligrams, twice daily, and she is discharged from the hospital. Since 2014, we are going to fast forward all the way until 2019. The saga continues. The saga continues. Those five years, this patient did remarkably well. She had few episodes of VT that were mostly terminated with anti-tachycardia pacing. She did, however, would receive one shock every so often, about once a year or once every other year. And the decision-making between herself and the clinicians were to continue her current medical therapy. You know, it's awesome that she did so well. And, you know, thankfully she has that ICD in that was able to provide antitechcardic therapies. And we don't know about what the interrogation showed at the time, but if we assume that these were appropriate therapies, it's helpful to just take a look at what these ICD devices can do, right? And so our audience knows that all ICDs also have pacemaker functionality. Her indication was not need of pacing, but to abort a malignant arrhythmia. In terms of aborting a malignant arrhythmia, these devices are essentially set to detect VTs above certain thresholds. And really, you know, if this patient only has a RV lead, all it can really say is, hey, look, the RV is going above an X number. Say uh, VT1 detection threshold is at 140. She may have slow VT at a rate of 130, and the ICD will never know about it, and it won't raise any flags on the ICD interrogation. So these devices are not impervious to issues like this. But say she goes above the VT1 threshold or the VT2 threshold, maybe 180 for a given patient, etc. For each of these thresholds, the device can be programmed to administer an anti-tachycardia therapy. And so the two options here are exactly as you highlighted, anti-tachycardia pacing, which is essentially different protocols where the device itself will try to overdrive pace out of the rhythm. However, it's not always successful. So oftentimes they'll have a program where they try an X number of ATP attempts uh, and then eventually deliver a shock. And so I think the key things to remember are one, if you have an arrhythmia below the detection limit, the device will never know. If you have a rhythm above the detection limit, it'll get uh, charted as an arrhythmia. So you'll be able to find it on a interrogation. And then it can deliver one of two therapies, anti-tachycardia pacing, where you try to overdrive pace them out of the rhythm, as well as shock therapy, which uh, this patient received at least once. The third point to make is that not all therapies are appropriate. This patient may very well be having AFib with RVR or AVNRT or any number of other less malignant arrhythmias, but the device doesn't know because it only has a lead in the RV. If you have an SVT with a heart rate that goes above the detection limit, it'll get confused and say, oh, this patient's having a VT, let me shock him. And so there is definitely a non-insignificant rate of inappropriate shock therapy uh, for these patients. And so important caveat as well. She, of course, had a device for a very clear indication. And the indication for her was secondary prevention. And so, you know, it may be safe to say that it's probably had appropriate shock therapy in the setting. Yes, Ahmed, that's really great rundown of antitechcardial pacing. And just to reemphasize the point that, you know, patients who get ICDs, it's not just like, okay, great, you're protected, you got your insurance and we're good to go. You know, if you have an arrest, you have, you'll get out of it. You have to have fine tuning of basically what you want to set your thresholds for antitechcardial therapy. So for example, if your patient is going to be active and going to be running a lot, you have to be cognizant that sometimes they may actually get tachycardic just from sinus tachycardia. 
So you would obviously be above that threshold. And the other point is that anti-tachycardial pacing is a method where basically, as Ahmed said, that the ventricle is overpaced. Because remember, a lot of these are re-entry tachycardias that basically develop into monomorphic tachycardia, which could devolve into an unstable hemodynamic situation or VF and basically lead to arrest. And anti-tachycardial pacing, what it does is it actually overpaces that scar. And it basically tries to abort that abnormal rhythm and it can do so almost painlessly. And so patients may not even know that they're getting that pacing and that saves them a lot, a lot of problems. Like patients, you know, often come with PTSD after getting shocked so many times in the field by their device, even though it was appropriate and saved their life, it could be very traumatic. So anti-tachycardial pacing is a method that really can be life-saving, but also psychologically and mentally saving. And so I'm glad that this patient did so well. So that was a great rundown of tachytherapies. But Sid, you were saying that these last few years, uh, save from uh, a few ATP episodes and a single ICD shock, she had done relatively well. What's the next episode in this saga? Absolutely. And I will say, just to piggyback your both great points about the anti-tachycardia therapies, is that for specific patients, those detection zones of VT could be different, like Dan alluded to. And maybe a younger patient, like the patient we have here, the detection rate might be a little higher because she might be exercising and able to generate an actual heart rate response. So there might be episodes where this VT might go unnoticed, which leads us, dun, 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 to now. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get to now, I I do want to add that while normal sinus tachycardia, while exercising is important to consider in setting uh, VT detection thresholds, our patients certainly won't be engaging in vigorous exercise because exercise is a big no-no for patients with ARVC. Rather, I should say vigorous exercise because the exercise itself can both, one, trigger an arrhythmia in this context, and two, contribute to disease progression. Because remember, the underlying pathophysiology here on the molecular level is an issue with desmosomal proteins. And so you had issues with cell-cell junction within the intercalated discs. And so vigorous exercise itself can impair cell-cell junction, increasing strain between the myocytes, and induce abnormal signaling that can cause disease progression. And so this is a very important feature of counseling to prevent sudden cardiac death and disease progression in these patients. That's a great point. It's also a class 1A recommendation to recommend the patient against uh, vigorous excite and uh, to participate in any sport activities. Yeah, absolutely. Those are all absolutely excellent points. Getting back to our case. So we bring it back to April of 2020 of this year, and she presents to an outside hospital emergency room again with acute onset dizziness and palpitations. It sounds like a very similar presentation to her initial presentation back in 2014. When, as soon as she's put on the monitor and put on telemetry, she's found to be again in a wide complex tachycardia at 170 beats per minute, again looking like sustained ventricular tachycardia. It's acutely treated at that time with amiodarone as well as cardioversion. And on interrogation of her ICD, the findings are very similar to what you both alluded to, that her VT is now beneath her detection zone of the ICD. As a result of this, her ICD detection zone was adjusted, and the decision was made to begin to escalate therapy and to try to look into why she's having so much of this ventricular tachycardia and what things we can do about it. As a result of this, the discussion of approaching a VT ablation was again discussed between the patient and the electrophysiologist. The patient was a little weary because at this time, 
she really describes no shortness of breath, no chest pain, really no symptoms of heart failure. The only thing she's saying is she's having this VT, but the VT is significant enough that she wants something definitive done about it. So she was seen by Dr. Kenneth Varian, one of our advanced heart failure attendings, who will be giving some expert comments at the end of this discussion. Wait, 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 wait. I just have to say that there are a lot of features here that may indicate sort of a poor prognosis because she's had sustained VT in the past. She's breaking through sotolols. She's having ICD shocks. But the greatest positive, most optimistic prognostic indicator here is that she's got Dr. Kenneth Varian looking after her. And I'll just say that Dr. Varian is someone who was a mentor and a teacher for me in my first year of fellowship and really just one of the kindest, most brilliant people I know. He walked me through one of my first right heart cats and made it just such a piece of cake and was there for us as the senior sort of heart failure fellow, uh, looking out for us, teaching us, making sure we, we were just falling in love with cardiology as first year fellows. So, you know, I'm worried about her, but I can sort of relax right now because I know she's in great hands. That's excellent. Dr. Kenneth Farian is, we love him very much. He's a phenomenal teacher and is, is quite a benefit to our program. So Dr. Varian sees our patient and decides that even though she's saying she's not feeling any shortness of breath, they're not really giving any overt symptoms of heart failure. Since the decision is to undergo a VT ablation, Dr. Varian decides that he thinks we should do a right heart catheterization to assess her feeling numbers just to get a little bit better lay of the land. So she's admitted for a right heart catheterization, and the numbers are actually pretty surprising for what we end up seeing. Her right atrial pressure is 10, not suggesting too significant volume overload. Her right ventricular pressure of 22 over 12 millimeters of mercury is pretty close to normal, with a pulmonary artery pressure of 21 over 12 with a mean of 15. So far, things are looking pretty okay. He continues the right heart catheterization and sees the patient has a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 10, which suggests that she does not have elevated left-sided filling pressures. But then when we get to our cardiac output and our cardiac index calculated by FIC, she has significantly decreased cardiac output at 1.9 liters per minute and a cardiac index of 1.1 liters per minute. Oof. So Jeff, these numbers are really helpful and it is telling us patients definitely has an RV failure. So if we look at a RE over watch pressure, which is uh, one, so if it is above 0.86, this is definitely a marker of right-sided heart failure. Another one was a puppy. Uh, puppy in our patient is a 0.9, which is uh, way quite low for our patient. Yeah, so that's uh, really very helpful just to re reiterate these points is, you know, we have evidence that there is mild right-sided fluid overload or elevated right-sided filling pressures. Her overall cardiac output is low. And we have hemodynamic markers that tell us that there is right-sided dysfunction hemodynamically. So the pulmonary artery pulsatility index is low and our RA over wedge ratio is low. We've discussed this in prior episodes and definitely worth uh, revisiting. Yeah, um, that's a great point and definitely worth revisiting. These are complex concepts that come up over and over again, and we were really trying to highlight them over and over again to bring everybody to the same level. But just a few other things to note is one is that, again, this patient is not even coming in with heart failure. They're coming in with VT. And so when we see a cardiac output of 1.9, that's two liters per minute by FIC or a cardiac index of 1.1, that is telling us this is a really, 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 really sick heart. 
But it's also telling us this person's body is compensating for that because, again, she's coming in for VT. This is an electrical problem that she's getting this VT ablation, but yet she's able to function. Whereas some patients at these cardiac indices, you know, could not function, couldn't even walk up the stairs, couldn't even do anything, would be in frank cardiogenic shock. So it just shows the resilience of the body. And particularly with our ARVC patients, tend to present younger, have the ability to do this, but we have to be really, really, really careful because they are a few breaths of going over the edge. Yeah. And the only other point is a medical therapy perspective. You know, she's on Sotolol, which is really a class three antiarrhythmic in terms of its major effect as a potassium channel antagonist or blocker, but it does have negative inotropic properties and certainly something to avoid when you have a cardiac index is slow. Absolutely. Those are excellent points that both of you made. So after seeing these numbers, Dr. Varian had a discussion again with the patient about what the next best steps are. As you mentioned, she has significant right-sided heart failure and is a low-output heart failure. The conversation of advanced therapies was broached between Dr. Varian and the patient. They decided to push forth and do the VT ablation for, for the thought being, if the patient had another out of VT, that it could give her enough hemodynamic instability to push her over the edge into cardiogenic shock. So the decision was made to go through with the VT ablation and to stop the soda law and to begin the workup for a heart transplant. And just to expand on these complicated, complicated decisions in this setting, you know, we're, we're talking about it, you know, just sort of uh, as it happened, but I'm sure the Dr. Varian was really sweating, not sweating because he's such a cool guy, but, you know, was really deliberating on the decision making here, right? Because there are two issues. One, a VT ablation itself. Let's talk about that. You know, the pathophysiology, the abnormality, the scar, the VT substrate, typically is epicardial and it may grow mid-myocardial. And so that really is uh, correlates to the LGE that we might find on the cardiac MRI. But that means that these typical subendocardial mapping and subendocardial ablation may be less effective. And so some patients may need epicardial ablation. Okay, fine. Say you do what you can and you ablate the VT. The second thing is actually just within the procedure, is this patient going to tolerate uh, VT ablation? Because part of that procedure is to induce VT, identify the circuit, and ablate it. And so patient with a resting cardiac index of 1.1 may not tolerate it hemodynamically. Thankfully, she did. The third issue is, you know, this is a progressive disease, right? Over time, because of these, one, cell-cell junction vulnerabilities and molecular cascade that induces transcription for fibrofatty or epidogenic fibrogenic genes, you have progressive replacement of muscle with substrate, the fibrofatty tissue. And so even if you ablate the VT now, that doesn't mean that you've taken care of the problem. The disease progresses, you will have more substrate down the road. And so this really is just patchwork. It's really palliative in nature. And so you definitely need the next step, which is the advanced therapies. And so when we think advanced heart failure therapies, you know, we talked about this with Dr. Steve Shu in the past. We talked about Joanne Lindenfeld in the past. She's not going to be a candidate for an LVAD, right? The LVAD is a left ventricular assist device. Her problem is on the right side. And so she really only has one option. I mean, you, you know, you could consider sort of right-sided devices, but her predominant option is going to be a heart transplant. So just to think our usual menu of devices or options are limited by the fact that this is a predominant right-sided pathophysiology. We did what we had to do, ablate the VT so that she's not coming in with ICD shocks, but we're setting the stage for the next steps for the advanced heart failure therapy evaluation, which is really a transplant evaluation. What were the next steps? I'm with you 100% right. So the decision was made to pursue advanced therapies. And as you said, her left ventricle is not the issue. So an LVAD would not be suitable for her. So really, it is a heart transplant as the, the main and, and most permanent solution for the issue that she has. 
So after she went through with the VT ablation, but it's important to note that in the VT ablation, they, since her cardiac index was low and without wanting to throw her over the edge hemodynamically, they did not induce VT during the procedure. She underwent the ablation. Dr. Varian called and referred our patient to our partner hospital to be seen at a transplant center. And she had an appointment three days after her discharge. So it was scheduled for three days after her discharge from SUMA. Prior to this appointment, when she went home, first day she was feeling excellent, feeling great, doing her normal activities without any problems. It was then on that second day that she calls into Suma's office to say that she's starting to feel nauseous, a little bit lightheaded, fatigued, and some overall abdominal pain. Oh, no. Those are very ominous symptoms for somebody with RV failure and a low cardiac output to begin with. Yeah, totally agree. From hearing those symptoms, it really sounds like our patient tipped over from being in low output heart failure to starting to develop symptoms of cardiogenic shock. As a result of this, Dr. Varian called the patient and told her to go directly to the emergency room at the transplant-capable hospital and called ahead to let them know that she was on her way there. Essentially, as soon as she got to the emergency room, they had a bed ready for her in the transplant ICU, and she unfortunately began to decompensate and was in true cardiogenic shock. So they attempted to stabilize our patient with inotropes. Unfortunately, her shock was significant and did not respond to those medications, so she was temporarily stabilized on ECMO. Wow, that's pretty fast in a couple of days. So looking back to the whole clinical course, so it looks like our patient went through all four recognized clinical phases of ARVC. So these are number one, concealed phase, which she was asymptomatic until the age of 44. And two, an overt electrical disorder phase, so which she presented to us about four years ago uh, with VT. And three, RV failure, which she definitely had. And four, advanced phase, a severe diffuse biventricular pump failure, which requiring advanced therapy. So our patient stepped into all four different phases. That's a great point, Poop. So that's a great way to describe how we have developed the fulminant step of this disease now being in cardiogenic shock and requiring advanced therapies. And just to make another point, the fulminant shock and the abruptness of the shock, her symptoms developed overnight. She was in the emergency room that next morning and she was on ECMO that night. Amazing her complete and utter cardiovascular collapse within a 24-hour period. Yeah, guys. And that's what, you know, we were commenting earlier with those right heart cath numbers. You know, sometimes the patient could be completely compensated from a heart failure perspective and be, you know, demonstrating that they are perfused at that particular cardiac output or index. But we know the trajectory of this particular entity. And so we knew to keep her, quote unquote, a tight leash. And so I'm so glad she was able to immediately recognize that there was a change in her symptoms and get the right care that she needed and get to the place where she could get that care that she needed. So, you know, this six-year saga could become a longer saga. I was just going to say that this is a story that we see time and time again with patients that otherwise have a robust physiological reserve, especially with younger patients, right? I mean, they are fine. They could be profoundly deranged in terms of underlying hemodynamics or their metabolic profile or what have you. They could be profoundly deranged, but they can hide it very well right up until the moment that all of a sudden they crash 
you know, I think this is just a reminder for myself that when there's somebody that I'm treating who has a robust physiologic reserve, just to realize that when they are sick, they can be very sick without looking sick. And so in this situation, just like as Dan said, like we recognize that, the team recognized that rather, and kept a close eye on her. So kudos to the team and kudos to making sure that she was plugged in and had a number to call when she wasn't feeling well. That may have saved her life. Absolutely. And remember, guys, in this particular patient, this wasn't the case, but remember, she had recently undergone a procedure. So besides for the fact that obviously we understood her trajectory with the right cath numbers and her, you know, her underlying ARVC, we also would want to think about post VT ablation complications potentially that could be leading to this. And I know that that was ruled out, obviously, to rule out effusions and, and such like that. But those are, you would still think of that as part of your differential in any patient that recently underwent a procedure. And it may very well be linked, right? Because inducing VT itself, like we talked about earlier, can be hairy in these patients. And this may have been one of the inciting factors that tipped her over, uh, as well as all the flush that goes into the catheters as you're zapping different parts of myocardium so it doesn't overheat. So they definitely could be contributing factors. That's really a great pickup and it begs the importance of watching them carefully afterwards also. Agreed. And I will just make other points. Could it be as simple as the sedation of the procedure itself? Or maybe the myocardium that was burned during the VT ablation, was that enough to drop her cardiac output even lower and send her, so to speak, over the edge? Yeah, absolutely. So at this point, she is in profound cardiogenic shock, salvaged temporarily with VA ECMO, but we're not out of the woods yet. What did we do? So as she was on VA ECMO and requires a transplant now for destination therapy, she was listed that very night. A heart quickly became available, and a heart was assigned to her later that evening. She was then successfully transplanted, not even two days after her initial presentation, to that hospital in cardiogenic shock. Wow, totally incredible. So how did she do after the transplant? She did very well, and actually, in continuing into this day, she continues to do very well and otherwise has been back to a, I guess, quote-unquote, normalcy of her life. Guys, this is just a phenomenal case, and I couldn't imagine a better, I would say, ending to the saga, but really is the beginning of a new saga, and it's incredible that she had the gift of life for another person to continue on. Now, I think her story teaches us so much about ARVC and overall approach to ARVC from the management perspective, and I think of management of ARVC in five important pillars. And so the first pillar is one, prevent sudden cardiac death, right? And so these patients, uh, Pooh so nicely outlined earlier, one of the phases can be, you know, malignant arrhythmias. And so that really is a very challenging first step because yeah, fine. If the patient had sustained VT, VF, sudden cardiac death in the past, they deserve an ICD from the perspective of secondary prevention. But it's really challenging to risk stratify patients for appropriate ICD therapy or appropriate ICD implantation for primary prevention. It's not very clear which patients uh, are the best candidates for that. The second is to improve the quality of life by decreasing the arrhythmia burden, right? Because what does arrhythmia mean? Well, palpitations that are symptomatic, but then also ICD shocks, ATP therapies, you know, recurrent visits to the doctor's office or the hospital. The management options there are antiarrhythmic therapies potentially beta blockers or the patient can tolerate it. VT ablation, again, is predominantly a palliative procedure. And so, you know, she received VT ablation in this uh, paradigm. The third pillar is to manage the heart failure. And so there really isn't heart failure therapies that are specific to ARVC. Now, definitely you can have a left dominant variant uh, from a DSP cardiomyopathy we talked about in the previous episode. 
but it boils down to the guideline-directed medical therapy that we think about specific to the RV. Attempts at reducing the afterload in front of the RV can be useful. Like if the patient has sleep apnea causing some element of pulmonary hypertension, treat the sleep apnea and whatever else you can do to manage afterload. But then also, you know, at the end stages, advanced heart failure therapies and specifically heart transplant like our patient received. The fourth major pillar is preventing or protecting rather, protecting the family. And so here we have a patient who received a diagnosis of ARVC using the clinical diagnostic criteria, and we have mutations that were of undetermined significance. And so if you define a mutation in your patient, the proband that you diagnose clinically, then that is a next step for essentially precipitating cascade screening in the family and identifying people who are at risk in the family who would need surveillance and close monitoring, of course, with the assistance of a referral or a genetic specialist who's knowledgeable in this area specifically. And the fifth major pillar really is more of an aspirational pillar, is to develop therapies for disease modification. So unfortunately, we know that ARBC itself is a progressive disorder. You have fibrofatty replacement of healthy muscle tissue, which both decreases your RV function, causing heart failure, and also is a substrate for VTVF. We don't have any therapies for disease modification, but we're learning a lot about the underlying pathophysiology. It isn't just a mechanical cell-cell junction problem. You actually have adverse nuclear transcription pathways that are induced with increasing expression of fibrogenic genes and adipogenic genes that precipitate this. And so there are early phases of small molecule therapies that are being studied and have had some success in animal models in modifying disease progression. And so that really would be the most important pillar if we can identify disease early on. But that, again, that's the aspirational pillar. So to summarize, the five major pillars of our management of ARVC are one, prevent sudden cardiac death, two, improve quality of life by decreasing the arrhythmia burden, three, manage the heart failure, four, protect family, and five, again, the aspirational pillar is to develop disease-modifying therapies. And this is where we really need all hands on deck with funding to fuel scientific research and people that are interested in advancing scientific discovery. That was a great summary of ARVC and an amazing way to approach really treatment. And I'll just add another main pillar, which is really pre the five, is to identify ARVC and to make the diagnosis in the first place. And that basically will get you your patient to the right care, as Amit talked about, and you can go through those five pillars and really set them up for success. So team, this was an amazing day. We love your city. The weather is beautiful. If you don't mind telling us a little bit about why you chose cardiology and what particularly makes your heart flutter being a cardiology fellow at Summa Health. So I chose cardiology after having a phenomenal experience in the CCU as a resident, really getting to understand and see in front of me the hemodynamics changing based on the medications that we were administrating and the therapies we were doing. I just thought that was absolutely amazing. That's one something that I wanted to be able to continue to do and to continue to focus on for the rest of my career. The things that I really like about SUMA is I, it's the patient population that we get to work with in Akron and SUMA is incredibly rewarding. It's a very racially diverse community with, of all levels of income. We have both urban, rural, everything in between. And there are so many people that are there to learn from them and amazing to be in the position to be able to care for them. Also, the culture at SUMA itself really encourages teaching between fellow and fellow as well as attending to fellow. We have multiple phenomenal sessions, different topic sessions. First, we have our echo sessions, our echo conferences. We have our vascular conferences. We have our 
our valvular conferences. And just to show the commitment that the attendings have to us today on the day that we're recording this, the attending that was holding the vascular conference came in on his day off to make sure that he was able to be there to be able to teach us about complications of vascular access and to really go through everything to make sure that we understood as much as we needed to. And the third thing is the home of LeBron James. As you know, he's a huge Akron guy and a hero to us <laughs> as well as nationwide. <laughs> That's awesome. And we are very excited and very proud to have him as part of our community. That's awesome. I was attracted to cardiovascular medicine since I was a med student. The more I learn about it, I love it more and more. So I'm, uh, during residency, uh, I clearly knew that this is something that I want to do the rest of my life. This is very exciting and rewarding field. That's why I'm here. SUMA is a great general cardiology training program where you get to see all bread and better, better cases, all common cases. So, and everybody here are very supportive and I like SUMA environment and I have family in Cleveland area. And also I'm a nature person. So that Cuyahoga Valley National Park is one of my favorite place. And I usually go for hiking once a week. So I, I actually chose cardiology or my interest became in cardiology when I was a fourth year medical student at Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine in Pennsylvania. And it was just a great cardiovascular team to be a part of. So I think it's always as a point to everybody here on the podcast, you know, it's a medicine's a lifelong process here and there's always going to be learners above you and below you. And so the team effort and your peers and mentors are almost just as important as it is yourself as you go through this career. So I was uh, fortunate enough to be with some great people who kind of helped lead the way and really spark my interest in cardiology. And that was really only amplified in residency and my more time in the cardiac field. In terms of SUMA, I think I probably have the easiest way to say it is because I actually was in residency at SUMA for internal medicine, and it really was sort of a no-brainer to stay for a fellowship here. I think there are some great qualities here that maybe in other programs you might not be able to find, in my experience, and just kind of to mimic Pooh and Jack of what the great things they said about the program itself. Also here is the environment, collegiality, and the respectfulness you have amongst your peers. You truly are treated as part of the team and a peer to these cardiologists here rather than almost a subordinate or some other terminology for it. Um, but you were just as respected in your decision-making process and your opinions on the care of these patients, just as the attending is as well. And your interplay between them, the cardiovascular surgeons, the cardiac rehab technicians, the echocardiographers, the entire cardiovascular division is, you know, I don't want to sound all corny here, but it really is one big happy family and it just makes coming to work every day really worth it and just only more energizing throughout the year. So couldn't be happier to be with my decision to be at SUMA. And like Jack and Pooh said, there's just a lot of great things to be here. So very excited about it. You know, one, that doesn't sound corny at all. And two, we cardiators live and die for corny, but it does sound like really an incredible place to train where the entire program really sort of comes around the training atmosphere and the fellows putting the patients at first. And we that really came out in your discussion. So I just, we're so thankful for you guys to spend time with us, teach us, give us a glimpse of the program. So this is just absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the Cardio Nerds family, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. And what you guys are doing is awesome. And to give us a voice and get our name out there. We can't thank you enough. So thank you for all that you do as well. It was a great, we had a great time. You guys are both gentlemen and scholars. It's an absolute honor.
Honor and pleasure. Now let's see ECPR from our Dr. Kenny Varian, who is our advanced heart failure specialist who took care of our patient. First, I would like to thank Dan, Amit, and the rest of the Cardio Nerds team for inviting the team at SUMA in Akron to present this case and to showcase our fellowship. You are all doing a great job in the arena of cardiovascular education, so please keep it up. Second, I would like to say that it was an honor to play a role in this patient's case prior to her referral for transplant. In most, but certainly not all cases, a patient with arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, or ARVC, will present initially with rhythm disturbances, particularly ventricular tachycardia or frequent PVCs, which often precede symptoms of heart failure. Since ARVC is an unusual diagnosis, most of the time ventricular tachycardia as an initial presentation for cardiomyopathy results in another differential diagnosis with idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy being the most common. There are a variety of diagnostic tests that can be considered to confirm or rule out ARVC, but no test is completely definitive. Also, there are no specific diagnostic criteria that can be used to algorithmically confirm the diagnosis, and the differential always depends on the patient's presentation. It's a fairly rare diagnosis with the prevalence estimated to be 1 in 5,000, but a new presentation of ventricular tachycardia in the setting of right ventricular dysfunction without pulmonary arterial hypertension or evidence of left heart failure should certainly raise your suspicion. The ventricular tachycardia at presentation typically originates from the right ventricle, often with a left bundle branch block pattern. The resting electrocardiogram will sometimes show something called an epsilon wave, which is a small deflection buried at the end of the QRS complex, which is thought to be caused by post-excitation of myocytes in the right ventricle. Inverted T waves in V1, V2, and V3, in the absence of a right bundle branch block, is also often seen. The findings of right ventricular dilatation and systolic dysfunction on the echocardiogram can raise your suspicion. The cardiac MRI can also show high-resolution ventricular images, but also myocardial fibrosis or adipose tissue infiltration which may raise your suspicion for the diagnosis, though the sensitivity and specificity of these findings are not terribly high. Finally, genetic testing, particularly for the desmosomal protein placophyllin-2, desmoglein-2, and desmoplakin can assist in the diagnosis, but keep in mind that additional genetic mutations have been associated with ARVC, and penetrance of these mutations is incomplete. Finally, left ventricular involvement may be present in as many as half of cases, and there are a small percentage of cases when LV dysfunction is the dominant feature. When a patient such as ours presents with a history of recurrent ventricular tachycardia, right heart failure, and no known pulmonary hypertension or tricuspid regurgitation, it's important to review all of her data. ARVC is one of the most difficult diagnoses to make, in my opinion, and it can be similarly as difficult as cardiac sarcoidosis. When I first met her, her main complaint was recurrent ventricular tachycardia. However, from a functional standpoint, it was clear that she was no longer doing the things she used to do. She had been a long-distance runner at one point in her life and had curtailed these activities long ago. Her physical exam was entirely unremarkable, including jugular venous distension and no precordial heave. She had a bounce in her step on the way out the door. These findings can be consistent with well-compensated right heart failure, 
and a review of her transthoracic echocardiogram showed a massively dilated dysfunctional right ventricle, but the intraventricular septum had a normal contour both in systole and diastole, suggesting neither pressure nor volume overload, which was supported by her physical exam. I had no intraminal probe BNP at that time and did not order one, and thinking back on the case, it may have been helpful, but I only say that in retrospect. We opted to perform a right heart catheterization prior to her VT ablation, not because of a specific complaint of hers, but rather because of our concern of progressive right ventricular dilatation and whether slow progressive decrease in her cardiac function was going unnoticed by the patient herself. Our plan was to use this data to better understand any problems that we might encounter during the ablation. Remember that some patients just don't complain, but they do alter their daily routine to avoid symptoms. Now, we discussed her right heart catheterization data in the case presentation, but I find it useful to revisit here. Her right atrial pressure at the right heart cath was 10 millimeters of mercury. Her pulmonary artery pressure was 21 over 12, and her wedge pressure was 10 millimeters of mercury. Her cardiac index was 1.1 by thick and 1.3 by thermal dilution, which was surprising. Her pulmonary vascular resistance was normal. At least physiologically, she had no evidence of LV dysfunction. On the cath lab table, I asked her how she had been feeling, and her only response was that the heat had been bothering her a little bit more that summer. Given her recent defibrillator shock while on Sotalol and the fact that she was minimally symptomatic with normal organ perfusion, we opted to proceed with the ablation, but with substrate modification only. This would avoid the need to actually put her into ventricular tachycardia on the EP lab table. While the ablation was ongoing, an arrangement was made for an expedited transplant workup. In the immediate post-procedure days, she felt fine, and the only report from the ablation procedure was that the voltage along her right ventricle was quite low, and in retrospect, this was clear indication that her right ventricle was slowly dying. At this stage, we opted for an expedited outpatient heart failure transplant workup, but this was all stopped when she called in three days after her ablation with complaints of worsening fatigue, ankle swelling, and nausea. These symptoms in the context of right heart catheterization findings, as we recently discussed, are concerning for the initiation of cardiogenic shock. Nausea, particularly after eating, is a common symptom we see, sometimes even more so than shortness of breath, when low output heart failure without significant congestion is occurring. This may be one of the most important teaching points of this case. If you have a patient for which low output heart failure is likely, and they are complaining of new onset weakness and nausea, that can be the transition to cardiogenic shock and end organ dysfunction. You can make a big difference in a patient's life by recognizing this quickly and getting the patient the pharmacological or mechanical support they need quickly. It is interesting in this case that the speed at which she received a transplant after listing and how this played a role in her care With the heart transplant allocation system put into effect last year, ECMO and non-durable biventricular support devices get higher priority than any other status. This means that there are more hearts available to patients like ours. In a way, the new allocation system probably accelerated her care. That in addition to her BMI of 22 and her blood type AB. In summary, The most important teaching point is recognizing the signs and symptoms of cardiogenic shock, which can be subtle and different from acute heart failure. Recognizing this quickly can be the most important difference for the patient in front of you. Now, once again, it's been a real pleasure to be a part of this great platform. 
And we thank the Cardio Nerds team for including us. And now, a word to the applicants from our amazing program director, Mark Penn, who's done a phenomenal job of leading and, and building this program in his image. Hi, this is Mark Penn, Program Director at the SUMA Health Cardiovascular Medicine Fellowship at the SUMA Health Heart and Vascular Institute in Akron, Ohio. We started our cardiology fellowship five years ago and are now recruiting our seventh class. Our fellowship consists of four fellows a year for a three-year program, for a total of 12 fellows in our program. At this time, we do not have any advanced fellowships at SUMA Health, although are working on plans to develop an interventional cardiology fellowship. The program has large volumes of patients who undergo coronary intervention, as well as electrophysiology procedures and heart failure treatment. We have an active TAVR program and mitral valve clip program in which the general fellows are able to participate in the weekly valve conference, as well as the valve clinic, and able to be present at structural heart procedures. Summa Health is a system that not only has three hospitals, but also an insurance program called SumaCare. The presence of SumaCare allows our fellows access to longitudinal data on covered lives within SumaCare and gives us a unique research opportunity to understand the appropriate and inappropriate use of testing, the cost of care, and how care or diseases have shifted over time. Beyond the SumaCare associated databases, we have databases, echocardiography, cardiac MRI, cath lab, EP lab, and our CCU care, offering our fellows a unique opportunity to do clinical retrospective studies, as well as put together a case study, series of case studies, like the one that Jack, Sid, and Pooh were able to present today with the mentorship of Kenny Varian. Beyond their work at Akron City Hospital, our fellows do elective rotations at Akron Children's, doing adult congenital and congenital heart disease, with an excellent opportunity to work with John Lane, who is both boarded in adult and pediatric cardiology. Fellows do a rotation, an elective rotation at Summa Barberton, as well as electives in advanced heart failure therapies at outside hospitals. With the excellent residency program at Summa Health, our fellows are able to learn to manage medical teams in the CCU on the consult service and hone their cardiology skills to expertise, which is reflected in our outstanding board passage rate of our graduating fellows, as well as the super fellowships that those fellows interested in such are able to obtain following training at Summa Health. Beyond the extensive inpatient training that our, all our fellows receive, we also have a robust outpatient clinic where fellows accrue patients over their three years. They are the primary cardiologists for their patients with an attending du jour in fellows clinic. Thus, the patients obtain a longitudinal understanding of cardiovascular disease and care and really a rewarding experience of improving the care of their patients during their time at Summa Health. All in all, the Summa Cardiovascular Medicine Fellowship was designed and implemented by a group of cardiologists who are all academically trained, who wanted to develop a fellowship that they all wanted to participate in. And our fellows really are treated as junior colleagues. The esprit de corps amongst the fellows 
and the attendings and within the attending group is excellent. And we believe that our fellows are getting outstanding training and history thus far, although not long, demonstrates that we are training excellent physicians for sought after for clinical positions after training and following uh, super fellowships for the vast majority of our fellows. We are quite proud of what we've developed at Summa Health, and we believe that any fellow would be lucky to train with us, and we feel very fortunate to have fellows who train with us. It's a lifelong commitment for us and turns into lifelong friendships and mentorships for our staff and our fellows. Thank you. Wow, what an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the Cardio Nerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all of the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for the Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Verghese, internal medicine senior resident at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedEd mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karin Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. Last week, I went to Blue Hunt Falls and I ran into a snake. <laughs> you, wait, you ran into oh a snake? Oh my gosh, yeah, what happened? <laughs> you, can't, you can't just mic drop after saying that. Tell, tell us what's the story. <laughs> I was hiking with, with my friend uh, in forest. The wind was so nice. I, I felt so good. The smell of the forest, wood. It was perfect. I didn't pay attention to my steps and I had something. And if, all of a sudden, I looked now, the black snake, which is at least like a, I think, uh, two feet long. Oh. It passed in front of me. If I didn't make that, that step, I could have a step onto it. And I ran and I left my friend. <laughs> I don't even know how, how far I ran. I ran, I ran like a little bit, a little far from that place. Oh my God. Oh my Thank God. God. Yeah. Okay, but I'm getting a little bit concerned about uh, the trail that we're on right now. Yeah, you didn't warn us in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we would have gone to a restaurant or something. <laughs> Not a poisonous snake, so but okay. still, so. Uh, I'm so oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're, you're definitely far more courageous than I am, Pooh. <laughs>